Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. So in the midst of uh, everything that the news report is reporting on, I feel uh, it's incumbent upon me to be sure that you know that babies are still being born. I actually know of three couples who have welcomed new babies into the world uh, over the weekend and three more last week. So uh, babies are being born. Birthdays are being celebrated. Maybe not in all of the same ways that we think uh, traditionally, but birthdays are being celebrated. I know a kid who got his first bike over the weekend for his birthday. Students are graduating from high school and college. Proms are being held, albeit virtually. People are interviewing for jobs and um, getting married. Again, in different uh, experiences than maybe they they had planned in terms of the number of people engaged or involved. But people are getting married. People are moving across the country. Churches are voting on whether or not to receive new pastors. Now, they're doing this, like, drive-through balloting, but they're voting nonetheless. Uh, Calls are being issued. Life goes on. We live in the strangest of times, but um, this is the time in which God ordained for us to live. And so you and I are alive for such a time as this. So I want to begin today with a reminder of who we are and how great is our God. So Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's so high, I, I cannot attain it. Where where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be like night, but even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they would be more than the sands. I awake and I am still with you. And the psalm concludes, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Life goes on, my friends. This is the day the Lord has made. 
This is a day that the Lord has given us in which we should live. And as we um, face the concerns of this day and this hour and even this moment, let us face those concerns as people who have faith in the reality of who God is, God's greatness, his goodness, and his grace. First up this morning, we're going to talk again with Dr. Zach Jenkins at Cedarville University, and we're going to get our weekly COVID-19 update. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Dr. Zach Jenkins. We talk with Zach each week. He's an associate professor of pharmacy practice at Cedarville University. Zach, welcome back. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. All right. So we um, we're hearing uh, lots of uh, of discussion and lots of commentary in the news about um, potential treatments for COVID nineteen. Let's start with some updated numbers and then uh, like to talk with you about plasma, since that is the subject of this week's video that you have posted for us. Sure. Um, I think uh, I, I think you may have seen this morning that we just as a, across the world ended up just surpassing three million total confirmed cases. So it, that's still creeping up, although it seems to be slowing down a little bit. And in the United States, we're almost at 1 million reported cases. Now, does that surprise you? I mean, I think, Zach, one of my, like, sobering questions, Mm -hmm. as many states begin, some states begin to start opening up, many other states considering, you know, sort of reopening their economies, um, relaxing social distancing uh, rules or, you know, the way we've been doing it to this point, um, People are still going to get this like the, the, the flattening the curve was not with the idea that a lot of people wouldn't eventually get COVID-19, but that too many people wouldn't get it right at the very beginning so that our healthcare systems wouldn't be overwhelmed. People are still going to get this. Am I right? You're absolutely correct. People will, in fact, get this because really, if you think about it, we've prevented most people from being exposed to it thus far to build capacity to deal, to deal with the virus. Uh, but moving forward, what we're kind of hoping, especially as we do a staged reopening, the number of cases is not going to spike overly dramatically. Um, so so one of the things that I think the government's really looking for, of course, is they want to make sure that there's a consistent downward trend that we've seen over about like a 14-day period uh, in order to, for, for people to really say, well, this is a, a really good time to, to reopen this sector of really what our normal life is. So I, I'm not really surprised that the number of cases is growing, um, but I think what, if you look to New York specifically, what's what's encouraging about them is their uh, their number of deaths that they're reporting every day. It's actually on the downward trend, and the deaths typically lag behind the new cases. So it's telling us that really the the rate of uh, cases that they have overall, the rate of of issues from those cases, is decreasing. All right. So um, let's talk about the people who who have recovered because they have developed antibodies. 
in any time that I say something that's inaccurate, you can just say um, non-science <laughs> girl. That's not right. Uh, they have developed antibodies, which potentially makes pl- their plasma something that other people are very interested in. Tell us about plasma um, and then tell us about our immune system and how those two things are related. Sure. So plasma is the liquid form, uh, liquid part of blood. It's about half of your blood volume overall. And really what it's comprised of is nutrients, proteins, uh, some things that you actually use to help your blood clot, but also the antibodies are actually contained in that. And antibodies are basically your body's way of identifying foreign substances like bacteria, like viruses, and, and basically it flags those, those substances. It paints the target. And what that allows your body to do then is send its white blood cells specifically to attack that foreign substance in the body. And so the thought is, if you have people that have really started to develop, uh, especially the kind of long-term antibodies that we're looking for, they think that you might be able to help treat people by actually taking someone's plasma that has those kinds of antibodies and transfusing it into a patient who maybe hasn't had that opportunity opportunity to develop those antibodies yet. Okay, and so um, talk about the potential effectiveness of this. So we've actually known about plasma for a while. Uh, we've actually used it all the way back from pretty much the uh, the turn of the century where we were thinking about things like the Spanish flu. We were thinking about uh, dealing with diphtheria. And they've tried tried it in those cases and saw some success. So this isn't really new. This this is kind of like, a, I think a good way to put it, is the, the newest, oldest therapy. <laughs> because we're bringing it back <laughs> to the forefront in a long time. For like like hand-washing. Like hand-washing, exactly. Like hand-washing, right? I mean, the, Jew, the, the Jews were like um, hand-washing. Yes, we've been doing that for uh, many, many <laughs> millennia. Okay. Anyway. Exactly, exactly. But but in this case, it, you know, we got we, we've gotten to the place where we're so reliant on antibiotics and other things that are really more novel inventions that we've been using for a long time that we kind of stepped away from these more traditional therapies um, because these are a little bit more complicated to use and you need a donor. So that's that's a little bit more difficult in and of itself. Um, so we've been using this for a while, but really it's kind of gained a little bit more momentum more momentum lately because we did actually trial it against SARS when there was the SARS outbreak. And SARS, of course, is another type of coronavirus. And so when they looked at that, they actually did see a little bit of success. And so that's actually gotten people to think, hey, maybe we can actually use it to manage this particular coronavirus. Um, And when we talk about donors, so uh, I think that's a, a critical part of this conversation. One of the things that I've become aware of over the weekend is that some people who have survived this um, now are like experiencing some guilt related to that. Like, why did I survive it and other people did not? And so this actually gives them at least something positive to contribute, and many of them want to. Talk with us about um, who is eligible to, to donate and how that's happening right now. So essentially, if you're interested in donating, um, you actually have to meet a few criteria, one of which is you have to have tested positive for the virus. So Unfortunately, people that maybe were symptomatic but never were tested would not necessarily qualify. But people that have been tested, um, if as long as their symptoms have resolved, they could be potentially eligible. And there, there's some really specific durations that they're looking looking for for symptom resolution, et cetera. 
but potentially those people are, are good targets for, for donation. Um, one thing to think about is where would you donate? And so there are a few major programs out there, uh, one of which is actually run through the American Red Cross. And uh, basically, if you work with the American Red Cross or some of these other local blood banks that are part of this part of these programs, if you go into Donate Plasma, they'll actually screen you and, and make sure that you're a candidate, that you don't have any uh, bloodborne pathogens like HIV, like hepatitis or anything like that, um, that you could potentially transfer into someone else. And so when they screen those individuals, then as long as they qualify, as long as, again, they had tested positive, they're symptom free, that's when you're eligible to donate. And the donation process is a long process. It's not like when you normally give blood where it's about 10 minutes or so. This is probably about two hours on average. All right. So you and I are going to take a very brief break. Zach, when we come back, um, let's uh, let's talk about a few of the unknowns. Maybe let's talk about some other um, things that are being tried, um, other treatment options that you're hearing about. And then I want to ask you, I know that the World Health Organization has, you know, has basically said, look, there's no evidence that um, that contracting the virus and then recovering makes you immune from getting it again. How does that, you know, sort of align with this conversation about antibody therapy and um, and reopening everything? So I just want to have those constellation of conversations in just a moment. I'm talking with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. We'll be right back. Great God, great God. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University, we are um, sort of doing our weekly COVID-19 update here. This week's video um, on YouTube on Cedarville's page that you will want to be looking for is how plasma, oh, it just jumped off my screen. It's how plasma something. What is it? How plasma what? What's the title of it? How plasma, uh, just scroll back to the beginning. Hold on. It's playing itself right now. COVID-19 plasma, <laughs> just plasma. There you go. That's what we're looking for. All right. So, so Zach, thank you uh, again for being with us today. Um, as we as we think about this and as we think about this as a potential therapy, talk with us about maybe other um, therapies that are being tried, maybe some that are showing some success, and then address this question raised by the World Health Organization saying there's no evidence that, quote, contracting the coronavirus makes you immune to a second infection. Sure. So there, there are actually quite a few different things being investigated right now. Um, I'll say one thing that's actually that that I caught wind of recently uh, is famotidine. You may know that as Pepsid. So researchers really? actually in, in China ended up uh, they they observed that people that were on Pepsid apparently fared a little bit better with the virus. Now I want to say that with caution. It's being looked at in New York. Um, but this isn't a case where we should just go out to the stores and start buying up all the Pepsid and taking Pepsid because really we don't know for sure whether it's going to work or not. And I'm honestly a little bit suspicious of it myself. But it, it's one of those things where we're start, we're almost going to this this uh, case of like almost using anything for all these other diseases that have nothing to do with infections to see whether they work or not. And that's what's really kind of bizarre about this virus in general. But I'll say as far as things that we that make a little bit of sense um, that we're seeing a little bit of success with. So there's a there's a drug called remdesivir and it's an antiviral that was originally developed for use against Ebola. And with Ebola, they actually found that it wasn't successful at all. Um, however, there in the current trials against the coronavirus, they're actually seeing a little bit of success 
although the data is still a little bit out there so far. A lot of these trials, unfortunately, um, that, that, are, that haven't necessarily been, uh, I guess, vetted well, these things aren't always peer reviewed, which means a lot of bias can a lot of bias can be introduced, and they're single arm in a lot of cases, which means there's no control. So we don't always know when they're using it whether it's actually going to be better better than the standard of care. So that makes it a little bit difficult to interpret how to deal with these these new things that aren't being fully investigated yet. But there are a lot of trials underway, and my understanding, um, according to what's been stated, the larger ones we're expecting to probably finish in May, and therefore probably in the early part of the summer when they've looked at all that data, we'll have a better idea of what's working and what's not working. Um, now, the second part of So one question, of the things that – yeah, okay, go ahead. Sorry, Do the yeah. second part of the question. No, no, um, I you, love that. Thank you. I forgot <laughs> I had a two-part question. <laughs> The second part of your question, um, you were asking about antibodies and specifically, like, do we know whether or not we're absolutely going to be immune to the virus if we've had it before? Um, so the answer is we don't know 100% yet. Um, in theory, yes, um, but but it's one of those things that we kind of have to wait and see. There have been just some some really small reports across the world of, pre of people who've previously had the virus getting it again. Um, we think that may have to do more with t testing issues or the fact that maybe they didn't actually complete all of their treatment necessarily and maybe still had some residual virus, but we don't know with, with certainty. Um, the, the working theory is it's probably going to work, but we just can't say with 100% certainty that that's true. So you you taught us a couple of weeks ago, it might have even been as recently as last week, about contact tracing um, that is something that I have been hearing a lot more about just in terms of a lack of people um, who are apparently, you know, like up to speed and ready to do that, um, that, that we need more people who are able to do contact tracing everywhere. We also need more capacity related to testing. Um, talk with us about in some places um, states won't reopen simply because they haven't done a sufficient amount of testing and they don't have enough testing to sort of prove that um, that their numbers are what they need to be in order to reopen. So ba basically at this point, if you think about the states that have been the hardest hit, they're typically the most populated states. And so as the federal government has been enacting a lot of its emergency powers to help get these tests to market more quickly, um, what, what's happened is a lot of these have been allocated to those areas that have had those bigger populations. So some states that maybe are smaller or they're more rural haven't necessarily had the best access. But what you're going to see probably moving forward is as some of these larger states get all these testing capabilities ramped up, some of those resources are going to be diverted the other direction to the other states that don't have those resources. Um, so we're, we're trying to increase our capacity. I think it's been stated that we're looking to double as a country what our overall capacity is before we can safely just start to reopen in all states completely. Um, we're, we're getting better at that every single week. And, and so that's something that we're going to see a lot of moving forward. Now, specifically with contact tracing, um, there are going to be a lot of volunteers that are going to be needed across all state lines. And, and honest to goodness, I think the numbers have been punched and they're thinking it's going to take about 300,000 total people. So it's, it's a lot of manpower. And the health departments that are normally involved with that, I think in the country total to about 
2,500 to 3,000 people. So you can see how many more people we're going to need for that. So they're actually looking for volunteers. They're trying to recruit health profession students like pharmacy students, nursing students, medical students, et cetera, to help also do that kind of tracing. But if, if someone's interested, they could contact their health department and ask, how can I help? Yeah. So um, literally, if you just Google, um, how do I volunteer uh, for con- and the word contact tracing, you're going to get a whole list. I just got a list right here and they even tell me where I could do it near where I live. So um, the Googler is working on this. Uh, and so let's be uh, let's be if you're available and this is actually something you know how to do like you. You're a far more um, science smarty pants than I am. And you've you know what contact tracing is and you know how to do it. Like the country needs you right now. You this is for such a time as this for you. Whatever else you've been up to, this is something that uh, if you'd step forward and do this now, it would be a great blessing to all of us. Um, Zach, any walk off this week just in terms of encouragement to folks in the midst of all this? You know, I, I think I would I would add. Um, really, I think you said you have to be a, a sciencey smarty smarty pants person to do that. And, and honest to goodness, I think a lot of these healthcare. Um, departments, these public health departments, would train you if you don't feel like you have that capability. So I think mm-hmm. a lot of people, if you have that op- option to to help volunteer, um, I think that's a great way that you can get involved and try to help. But there's lots of other great ways. I, I think, you know, we still are going to have people that are struggling to get food, um, like some of our students that are kind of out of school that have usually relied on those schools for food. We're going to have communities that still need groceries picked up for a while. So there's a lot of other ways I would say if you have the capability to lend a hand, please do. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Zach. As always, thank you. You guys can go to YouTube um, and check out Cedarville's page. What you're looking for this week is COVID-19 plasma. Dr. Zach Jenkins. We always appreciate it, Zach. Thank you so much. All right. No problem. You have a great day. You too. We'll be right back. Just want to lift up one quick story of a, a second second generation um, immigrant. His name is Craig McFarland. He's 18 years old. He lives in Jacksonville, Florida. He is about to graduate from a public high school. He has received acceptance letters from every single one of our Ivy League institutions in this country. All eight Ivy League schools have sent him acceptance letters during his senior year. In addition to his AP course load related to other things, he took courses in French, Spanish, and Arabic. He ran track, loves his dog, describes himself as self-motivated and driven. Um, Let me me conclude where I started this. Um, His mom, Donabel Santiago, originally from the Philippines, immigrated here to the United States um, when things in the Philippines for her family uh, became simply unlivable. Let's be mindful of... uh, who we rely upon when we look at the next generation of young people who are now rising up, graduating from high school, going off to college with aspirations to become things like doctors, which is Chris McFarland's, uh, Craig McFarland, excuse me. I have a friend named Chris McFarland. Craig McFarland's uh, aspirations. All right. Next up, we're going to be talking with Chris Pulusky. He's the president of Bethany Christian Services. One of the things that has uh, only increased in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic is the need for children to be taken care of outside of their families of origin. Foster care, the need for foster care is on the rise. What does it look like for you and I as Christians to gear up, to get ready, to volunteer, to at least be 
emergency placement locations, if not full-blown foster care uh, families. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Okay, so lots of folks are opening up the Bible in new ways. Uh, lots of folks are be, have become interested in what God has to say about things. We are, as always, giving away a Bible this month. This month, it's the Lucado Encouraging Word Study Bible. We're giving away one copy of Max Lucado's Encouraging Word Study Bible each week. All you have to do to enter to win a copy is go to MyFaithRadio.com and register. Other things we're giving away right now. Uh, we've got a limited edition bumper sticker slash window cling thing going on right now. So, uh, again, you can go to MyFaithRadio.com. You can request a free limited edition vinyl window decal or standard bumper sticker. You can let other people know uh, about Faith Radio. Share the message of hope in your community. I think of this as like the way that we all share the good news of Faith Radio with our neighbors and friends, even in a time of social distancing. You don't even have to roll down your window and say anything. You can just, you know, people just see what's on your bumper or see the window cling on your window. There you go. Uh, In this time when we can't cling to one another, let the Faith Radio thing cling to your window. Have uh, Have a little social distancing promotion going on. All right, uh, to get all of it, just go to MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be right back. What's the temperature in your home? If the conflict's getting hot, don't give up on your team. Remember to keep the end in view. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If the bickering seems constant, you're probably not thinking about your kid's character 10 years from now. But rest assured, your hard work today will pay off tomorrow. Help your teens acknowledge their frustrations and work through them. Teach them to see different options to their troubles, to weigh them, and then to choose wisely. In the heat of the battle, it may feel like you're losing ground. But take heart, Mom and Dad. What you teach your child today will show up in their character years down the road. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org. attention now to children specifically uh, in order to connect with the things that we are about to talk about here. Let me go ahead and give you a website, Bethany.org, Bethany.org. Welcoming Chris Pulusky to the program. He is the president of Bethany Christian Services. Chris, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, I was reading in Christianity Today an article that you wrote entitled, We may be, quote, safer at home, but many at-risk kids are not. The rising demand for foster families presents an opportunity for the church. First of all, talk with us about the reality that those who were already the most vulnerable before this pandemic um, are are disproportionately impacted um, by these stay-at-home orders. Sure. Well, we're watching the emotional toll of COVID-19 continue to climb. It's a bit of a pressure cooker. So, kids that were vulnerable before, that they had, um, you know, uh, unstable homes. Um, Things haven't gotten better. So we're seeing an increase in things like substance abuse, domestic violence, child abuse. Um, So the situation hasn't gotten better during the crisis. It's gotten much worse. Um, 
it's actually a statistic I saw the other day. It says 43% of uh, the U.S. public that was surveyed said their emotional well-being is much less. So it's declined over the past month. And in fact, during that same time, 55% of the alcohol sales across the U.S. has gone up. So I think the statistics say one thing, that it's, uh, it's not getting better for kids in homes and it's not getting better for families. And making matters worse, um, you know, I think that we, we would all suspect that because schools are closed and kids are like only with the people who they are with at home, um, reporting is probably way down. Absolutely. So before you had, you know, kids could go to school um, and there was a, let's say, a, a release valve for families that maybe weren't functioning well for. And if kids were being abused or were being neglected, um, they could be uh, reported to the, the teacher and the teacher could help them to get into foster care. Because at Bethany, we believe that families belong together. So we want to do everything we can do to try to keep those families together. But when that's not possible, we want to have a good foster home for those kids. And how kids get into the foster care system typically is through the schools because they're the ones to report to say, ah, things aren't good at home and this kid needs to come out of the home for, for a while. Um, yeah, and that's just not happening right now. So we don't know what's happening in these homes, but we're seeing that um, the statistics are not looking good. And at the same time, uh, the number of foster homes that we have that are kind of tried and true, they're going down. Um, we've got older foster parents, and they're having to step away because they're more vulnerable to the the, the virus. Also, um, we're seeing people lose their jobs. So at this point in time, they're saying, you know, I don't think I'm ready to step up and be a foster parent. And also, people with kids, they're just not sure what's going to happen. So they're they're not wanting to take another additional child into their home. So we're seeing a decline in our tried and true foster homes. We're seeing the indicators that are showing things are not getting better at home. Um, but yeah, in fact, you know, even for myself, so I've got kids of my own right now. Um, it's my son's 13th birthday today. And, you know, it's it's not the best birthday, I have to say. Um, we'd hope to have a party mm. for him. Um, and it's an inconvenience. And it's not nice. And, you know, I know people have also had to, you know, skip proms or I have friends that actually have had to put off weddings. So even for good, I would say, sturdy homes, it's been stressful, but especially for the homes that we're serving, things have gotten much worse. So um, we've got kids also that are in need of homes. So it's it's really, I think the best word is precarious for kids who are getting ready to age out of foster care because the courts are closed right now. So their situation's looking bad. If they age out of foster care, the statistics are horrible. Um, I want to say seven out of 10 girls that age out of foster care get pregnant for the age of 21. 20% of those kids that age out of foster care um, before reaching permanency um, will become immediately homeless. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a bad statistic. Also, um, kids in the homes um, that have lost a sense of normalcy, it's, I'm trying to describe it. So we have kids that are in homes and they're used to having this, I don't know, uh, routine. They don't have this routine anymore. So um, the kids that we're serving are typically, I don't know, the ones that are at the edge of society. They're on the fringe. And their lives have just become a little more fragile. But I would say there, there is some hope in this too. So we've got you know, the COVID-19. It's creating a pressure cooker across our country. We've got kids that are more vulnerable. Um, we've got less tried and true families. And uh, you know what? We do have people stepping up online. though. So um, foster care is not closed. And that's kind of the message we want to get out. That 
hey, there are opportunities for people to serve. Um, we're, in fact, we're doing online recruitment for foster care. So we want people to have an opportunity to step up that are willing and wanting to step up during this crisis because it's not just a financial crisis. It's not just a health crisis. It's a kid's crisis. All right, um, Chris, when we come back, I want to talk about emergency placement and I want to talk about um, helping families in the time of crisis, um, finding safe families for children, safe families for children um, at Bethany.org. I'd like to talk uh, about that as well. I'm talking with Chris Pulaski, the president of Bethany Christian Services, and we'll be right back. Continue my conversation with Chris Pileski, the president of Bethany Christian Services. Um, Chris, tell us about the opportunity for um, for families who are listening to either serve as a host family in Bethany's Safe Families for Children program or support families who are serving in that way. Absolutely. Um, first of all, it's just a great opportunity for the church, the big church, the big C church, to step up and be the, the hands and feet of Christ during this time. So there are so many opportunities to serve. And again, the world has become more fragile. Um, we're all facing the pressure. And this is the time for the church up, church to step up and just be the hands and feet. And they can do that by um, through programs such as Safe Families. So Safe Families is um, a program that a family um, can volunteer. And, and typically what you have is uh, it's a woman or a, a couple that are just having issues. They could they may need to go to rehab. They may need to have, I don't know, some kind of operation. They may be at the verge of meltdown and they um, realize that they need help. So they would typically or be a mother normally um, to place a child or children in a, a safe family and a family that has volunteered to take in a child outside of the foster care system. So that helps the mother, um, I don't know, do whatever she needs to do. I saw one great story of a woman who needed an operation, and she didn't want to stick her kids into foster care. She had no other recourse um, except through safe families. And a family took in her children, and she was able to get the operation that she needed. And then um, the children went back to be with the mother. But at the same time, that family that took in those uh, that child um, was able to have a relationship um, with that mother, and they have just uh, they've grown close, and it's been a great witness. So there are opportunities to serve out there to be safe families. At the same time, you know, people may say, "I just can't step up and be a foster parent right now. My life's a little crazy. Uh, the whole world's a little crazy." We encourage people to to pray, also for people who are working in the foster care system, uh, pe- uh, parents in the foster care system. Um, and also, many churches are stepping up to help with foster care, and it's it's it truly does take a community to do foster care. So we would encourage people, if they don't want to be a foster parent, to, to help somebody who is becoming a foster parent. Um, there's definitely needs. Um, in fact, at my church that I go to here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, we uh, the home group that I have, we walk beside a family that is going through foster care. They've got, I forget how many kids in their, in their household, I want to say five or six. And uh, we help with basic needs. We helped kind of upgrade some of the facilities. Um, so we walk beside and we are walking beside that family. So there are so many opportunities for the church to be the church um, and for people to, to, to serve, even if it's not through becoming a direct foster care. They could do safe families, they could pray, and they can also support what's going on. So I have a listener question. Um, I, I've heard that uh, Bethany is no longer going to do international adoptions. Tell us about um, the transition that's coming, I think, probably in like 2021. 
um, for Bethany Christian Services in terms of international uh, adoptions? Sure. Great question. So we are very supportive of international adoption. We've seen the decline in numbers of placements for international adoption where we used to do, I want to say, 500, 400 a year. I think we're going to do 46 this year. So we're seeing the decline in those numbers. Um, So we are referring in the future, we will be referring those people who want to do international adoptions to um, like-minded organizations. But what Bethany is doing, we are actually doing in-country adoption and in-country foster care through the church. So a great example would be Ethiopia. Um, this year, uh, I want to forget, three, 400 families um, fostered and also did uh, foster care adoption in Ethiopia. And we recruited those families through the church. So um, yeah, Bethany believes that adoption is a wonderful way to, to bring a family together. Um, we're focusing on in-country adoption, in-country foster care, but we also support those agencies that are continuing to do international adoption, especially with special placement needs kids. I mean, that's so important. When, when we think of um, things that are happening in the United States right now, uh, I think one of our sensitivities is to those uh, unaccompanied minors who are arriving at the U.S. southern border. Some of them will come into the United States. Um, I'm, I, I guess I'm just sort of asking a broad question about, you know, w- what happens to them? Mm-hmm. So Bethany is working uh, with foster care. So uh, Bethany has been taking those kids in for, gosh, we've been working with unaccompanied minors and unaccompanied refugee minors for 40 years. Um, those kids mm. coming across the border, we take them in, we put them into a foster home for an average of 45 days. During that time, they're able to go through the clearing process. Uh, we're able to find parents, a family member, or a family sp- sponsor 97% of the time. And then they do the background check to make sure that the child, child's not being trafficked. And then we're able to place that child back with its family. So we believe that mm. every child deserves a loving family um, in spite of politics. So we try to stay out of the politics of it, but we just focus on we want to make sure that every child has a loving family if, if it's for um, forever or if it's like these kids coming from the southern border, an average of 45 days. So many good, uh, so many good works. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. Um, you guys can find all, uh, all of these conversation topics and so much more just by visiting Bethany Children's Services' website, which is Bethany.org. Chris, thank you so much for being with us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. We'll be right back. I want you to just consider for a moment what home means to you. If I say the word home... Where does your heart go? Does your heart go to a childhood home? Does your heart uh, go to church? Does your heart go to heaven? Where does your heart go when I say the word home? Our experiences of home here on earth um, either help us understand, appreciate, and long for our Heavenly Father and what it is going to be like to dwell eternally with him. Or they make us suspicious um, that we don't, we don't want to live with, uh, with a father. Um, we don't want to live with a bunch of other people in a family because of negative experiences that some people have had in the context of what was supposed to be the safest place on earth. And so when we, when we think about who we are as a people of faith and what we ought to be, are called to be cultivating in the life of the church, Even in these times, 
even in these times when we cannot gather together in institutional locations that we think of as the church, we are yet the church. So you and I, each one of us, have church in our own homes. And so how are we reflecting um, a place where God dwells? How are we reflecting a tabernacle, temple reality? Um, How are we in our own homes right now um, manifesting, giving a a provisional demonstration of the kingdom of heaven right there at home? Is home a place of peace and joy and the word of God and sustenance and singing and provision? Um, Or is it a place of anger and fear and resentment and slam doors and loud voices and angry words? Kids are cultivating right now, uh, wives and husbands, everyone that I'm talking to right now, each and every one of us is cultivating our sense of what it's going to be like to be at home eternally in whatever home we're in right now. And so I just want to encourage us to consider the provisional demonstration of the gospel that's going on right now in our homes. Let us be making our homes, uh, wherever they are, in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, let's be sure they are beautiful substantial demonstrations of the gospel. That's actually what Paul tells Timothy. Like the church is supposed to be this visible, beautiful, substantial demonstration of uh, of the gospel in the world today. All right, we've got a whole other hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.